Hello there. You're listening to Sasitup podcast by Sashwath and Oscar where we speak with startup founders, venture capitalists and some of the leading talents in the world. We listen to their personal journeys and share their stories that shape their world view. Today we have Arthur Noble for our final episode of season 1 with us. Arthur is co-founder of Flexpad, former growth architect and strategy consultant at Revel X. And now Arthur works as a principal at Knight Capital and invests in fast-growing B2B companies. So first of all, Arthur, thank you so much for your time. It's great to have you here today. How are you? Hi, Oscar. Hi, Sasmith. Thanks for having me uh, today. Really looking forward for this chat. It's really going well. I'm working from say now remote, so uh, couldn't be any better, I'd say. So to kick off today's session, Arthur, we would like to learn more about your role to become an investor. You started as a founder yourself. Can you share with us your story? and why did you actually decide to become an investor yourself yeah sure thing maybe if i go back to high school very <laughs> a very long time ago i was super interested in in politics actually and i believed that that was the way basically to make the world a better place i would say that at some time in my 20s i i lost that sort of faith <laughs> and uh, started believing more in that companies could really transform society for the good then at some point I figured out and it was maybe in 2014 when I was doing just an internship at Unilever that you know established organizations is very hard to change something but if you look at the society we actually need a lot of change. So the organizations best positioned to deliver on that required change are startups and that's I think why I became interested in startup overall both to contribute to it and as to invest in it as well as it from a personal perspective I really like building things up from scratch and learning all day. My short story is that I I would say after Unilever learned the startup job at one of the ventures of Rocket Internet then after some other projects moved into the world of venture capital first at the Series B fund and afterwards at the seed fund so that was both B2C and B2B so I learned different perspectives and then after a year or so I decided to found my own company which was Flexpad where we try to enable the remote work to the masses basically because we saw lots of people were interested in that but uh, not so many were doing that so we had this interesting uh, mission to combine basically the shortage of digital talents with the need for companies on the one hand and on the other hand have people that want to work remotely and try to merge that in a marketplace it was a very interesting journey but we really learned the hard way that market timing is everything and that's only the world became ready for remote work in 2020 and yeah, with the, with the with the unfortunate events of covid-19 i had to find like a different job that's where i specialized afterwards in growth because i had to take my own medicine and after a while joined night capital we are which i go to market specialized b2b saas fund investing in europe and occasionally in the us primarily in the series a and b states Yeah and the Knight Capital you just mentioned it B2B companies solely B2B companies why is that what's the beauty for you to invest in B2B companies I definitely like B2C as well but what I particularly like about the B2B topic it's a couple of points first I would say it's easier to relate to for me personally secondly it's a bit more problem driven thirdly I think it's a bit less trendy and the last point which sounds maybe a bit odd is as i get older it's much harder to relate to new trends for teens so if i look for instance to tiktok i'm currently not a user but i've installed it like what is it over 2 years ago or something just to try to understand it it's not something for me personally but i think as an investor you at some point at least have to understand what the company is doing and where it's going and i just feel that in a b2b environment i feel more comfortable 
you mentioned it's more problem driven. What do you mean by that? Isn't B2C like customer needs, customer pains first as well? I would say if I look to, for instance, TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram, those type of companies, it's much different compared to just take MailChimp as a very good example. Companies just want to have like easy marketing automation solutions just to email their clients and there was no solution. So they invented MailChimp. And that is for me a more logical thing personally to understand compared to, for instance, founding another social network, which has just a slightly different angle, which I might not really understand so well, in all honesty. What I found super interesting, when you work with startups at Knight Capital, these long-term partnerships are super important to you, right? It's not just you buy shares and then you find quickly an exit. You really want these long-term partnerships. So can you talk us through your working relationships, working partnerships with startups? Like, how do you get to know about those possibilities? How does your first meeting look like? How often do you do regular check-ins? We are really interested about that as well. Maybe what is sort of like a personal mission statement for me when I deal with founders is that even though it's 100% their decision in anything that they do, I still feel it a bit like I'm sort of joining that, that startup almost as a founder, at least have that intrinsic motivation to let it succeed but without the control, because I believe as an investor, you should give the keys to the founder and just be a support where necessary. It's for me on a very, on a deep personal level, how I care about the startup that I deal with. We actually in the firm, we scout a lot of companies. That's the way we believe we find the most interesting opportunities. And we check databases like, for instance, Crunchbase or a company like DealRoom, where we invested in. From there, we, we reach out to them via different channels. And then usually Paul, one of our partners, has the first meeting with them. And I would say I would characterize them by very informal meetings. And what I personally always try to do is a bit of business development in that meeting just to bounce off ideas, just to get a bit of like an idea, you know, like, do you really understand it? Just to explore, like, are there some opportunities and go a bit beyond the usual suspects like what's the competition like what's the traction how much are you raising basically those type of questions so I always try to do like try a little bit different angle from there and we do the evaluation process maybe we can talk about that later a bit more in depth i usually say to the founder let's always have a financial meeting with the cfo for instance or vp of finance at least once a month and uh, one strategy commercial meeting with the founder and uh, potentially like the, C the CCO or CRO or CMO. And other than that, what I try to avoid is planning lots of meetings with the founder because I personally believe much more that we invest in founders who basically know how to run the business themselves. If they have any questions, you know, like even if it's in the middle of the night, they can call me and we're just going to figure it out together. But I don't want to stand in their way. I want to be there when they need me. And of course, you know, if I see something interesting, I support them. I like with introductions, I can evaluate like potential candidates for them. It can be pretty diverse, but it's basically based on their request. Excellent. As a founder, you have been a founder earlier as well. So how did your experience as a founder change your view on your investments? <laughs> I always make the joke that the founder job is much harder than that of an investor. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I would definitely say that I have a lot of empathy and respect for the entrepreneurs. As an investor, I can focus on one topic like investing. As a founder, you know, you're involved in so many different things. So I don't want to stand in their way and just be their support, both more from a content perspective, but also emotional if needed. What I think like the third thing which is quite important is that I know 
what the ups and downs can be in a business. For instance, I had a book that I've now written. I've, I've said I know both the, basically the hype and the disillusionment of running a startup. That perspective, I think, helps me approach it a bit different if results are not the same as forecasted in a given month. And sometimes you have a better quarter. Sometimes you have a worse quarter. Results have to be have to be accomplished, but it's not, you don't ask the question, why didn't you meet the results? But it's more like, how can I help you to realize those results? And I think that's just a different approach because you just know that sometimes things don't work as they are supposed to work. And then maybe the last point is because you've been an operator, you sometimes can look through like the processes and know like, okay, you know, if they fix this in three or months, you actually have sort of a hidden gem you have more like i would say like a higher confidence that a company can succeed absolutely i think you started off from a very good point right being empathetic towards the entrepreneur or the founder because they are juggling with a hundred different things at any point in time so uh, i'm curious to know about what are the biggest challenges founders in series a are facing because night is like investing in that spectrum yeah, definitely. I would say well, the book that we've written, this was like our central topic. If you go from C to Series A, you basically move from ad hoc slash initial processes to a business that has to care about replicability. You have to systematize your at least large parts of your business. And I think that's a big challenge of going from C to Series A. But if you then are in your series A stage and you want to, of course, grow to a series B stage, you have to transition from replicability to predictability. If you then look from like, what are the big challenges? Like first from a strategic point of view, I would say there are mostly four big challenges. First is launching like a new distribution channel. So for instance, you do outbound. Now you also want to do inbound on top of that. And the same thing is also doubling down in your sales model. So if you grow, let's say, from 30K MR to 100K MR, which is like roughly 3X, now you have to grow from 100K to 300K, which is still maybe 3X. But, you know, instead of 70K MR that you add, you now have to add 200K MR. Doubling down your sales model is definitely one of the big challenges that I've seen. The second thing is like expanding to different uh, geographies. Third thing is like proof that you can sell in various industries or verticals. And the fourth thing is making your product more mature. And... This is also a eh, strategic challenge. This is also why I personally don't really believe in product market fit in a way. Yes, you have once a product market fit in a niche, but from there you have to expand just the dimension I just described. And all these things, you need to get a certain product market fit. And that makes it like, very challenging. From an operational or scaling point of view, I would say there are five big challenges, which is like a data challenge. For instance, which data do you gather? How do you structure it? The second thing is an HR challenge. Which type of people do you get? What type of skill sets do the people need? What type of mindset do they need? Then you have the documentation challenge. So there is a guy in, in, my, in my book who's called Joao Grasa. He's a co-founder of Unbubble. And he gave me this example that he had just created the dummy variable in his code. And then 24 months later, no one knew why this dummy variable was there and no one dared to touch it. Lots of people spent lots of time on that and productivity dwindled because of things that weren't documented. And I think that is like a big challenge you see as well. Then you have a fourth one, which is like tooling. So if you go, for instance, to a series A, you need to have like your basic tools in place. But once you grow further, you, for instance, have to move from HubSpot to Salesforce. So let's say every, every 24 to 36 months, you're changing tools because your maturity as a business changes. And the last thing is processes. 
you have to set up lots of processes. Sometimes things start breaking, but also this means that your iterative culture can change. And maintaining that, I would say, is one of the challenges for a startup as well. Earlier, you touched upon uh, evaluating the team or evaluating the people that you will be backing. So how do you go about evaluating the founders or getting to know the people and you know really investing in them in, in the journey? I like to say internally that I mostly invest in their thinking process because there are lots of things I can ask, but I cannot ask everything. But the thought process and that I have the feeling like, you know, I can give this person the keys of the car that I think that is where I'm ultimately searching for. I validate usually the team eh, in multiple sessions. Now, given the pandemic, I did it mostly remote. I would say I look for hard factors and soft factors. So on the hard factor side, you try to see like, hey, did this person did it before? Did they work in a high performance environment? Do they understand this industry? Are they able to build like a strong team? On the soft factors, you know, you're, you also try sometimes to challenge people and see like, can they handle criticism? What's their fault process? What's this sort of wow factor that every entrepreneur brings? I would say in every entrepreneur I've now invested over the past year, they had something special where I thought like, hey, if this indeed becomes like a success, you had at least this spark. And maybe I'm totally wrong, <laughs> but at least I, I, I definitely believe in them because of these things that they have on top of all the other evidence that there is. I think that's super interesting. You just said, do I have this feeling that I can give them the keys to the car? I mean, obviously you as an investor, you're checking the financials, the business model upfront before you make an investment. I think, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but the best investors have strong instincts, right? They listen to their guts. Maybe they think about, is it a good investment? What do my instincts say? How much does your instinct actually play a role when you make an investment? As an investor, basically you're on the one hand, you have FOMO. On the other hand, if you're the only one, it's also a problem. Uh, why is no one else investing in it? I try to be as rational as possible because I know it's not, it's not always like a good predictor. But I definitely quickly have a feeling like this feels like a hard market or a small market. This feels very competitive. And those type of gut feeling types of things where you base your decision making on, definitely. Got it. So let's talk about a unique dilemma an entrepreneur usually has. You know, they're always worried who from the investor's team would take up a board seat if they would. Could you share the dynamics of the board as well? Because that's not every entrepreneur knows about, especially the first time entrepreneurs. The interesting thing is that I think like every investor approaches this in a different way. But how I personally like to approach it is that they know they can always reach out to me. What they see is what they get and that I'm at least trustworthy, that they can count to me and not directly think in the interest of night, but also try to see like what like the broader perspective makes sense. I do also think uh, like uh, your level of personal contact with a founder, uh, if you talk like on really personal levels, that really varies, I think, also from the founder personality that you have. But I think the principles I just described, I think are for me very important, as well as for instance, uh, if it's Christmas that you just call founder and just wish him Merry Christmas or just try to see like, hey, when is his son has his birthday and try to congratulate it? Because in the end of the day, uh, you're a team, you're, you're in it together. Makes sense. Let's discuss a little bit about your uh, personal journey as well. I mean, Oscar was mentioning that you had a world trip in 2016 where you spent four months traveling the world. How did this travel experience made a mark in you and in your thought process? It's actually interesting to know that I started Flexpad where I wanted to combine remote work, which would facilitate work from anywhere around the world and thereby directly also traveling. 
that was actually a huge push for me to start Flexpad. I always like to combine work and traveling at some point. So it has been like a big influence for me. Traveling has always been my, I would say, most expensive and favorite hobby. And what it really taught me in a way is just to be open-minded. If I travel, I really like to observe sometimes. I would just walk through the town and basically have no plan and try to see like, hey, well, what can I observe here? And what's different on what I'm used to and why does it work here? And how are things constructed? And that's for me, I would say the ultimate way of relaxation in a way. Agreed. Quite a lot of people and founders who have been building uh, world-class products always mention that, you know, that their worldview was shaped by their travels as well. They were exposed to multiple geographies. They happened to speak to people from all geographies. And, you know, the cultural element was something that they really learned from as well. Do you strongly believe that people who have been exposed to international markets early on through their career, either through their travel journeys or through their work or personal journeys, they would be in a better position to build global products per se? I would doubt that because if I look to the American ecosystem, I do think I like Americans just to travel a lot, just like anywhere around the globe. But maybe that system is, for instance, a bit different than in Europe, where you travel to, I mean, I'm from the Netherlands, uh, one of the smallest countries in Europe. So the interesting thing I think about Europe is that you just drive for 500 kilometers and you get into like a different culture. Although I recognize that US is just not one country and there are differences among states. So I do not necessarily think that's the case. It's more the, the mindset from the individual person. But I do think that it can become much easier so that it can help you to build your journey. Absolutely. Because especially when you are going for, uh, you know, the GTM model where you have to explore other markets, if you have explored, uh, let's say, Latin American market, if you have made forth some relationship in Latin America or Southeast Asia, then you will have stronger, uh, you know, viewpoints from the ground itself, from your personal journeys that you can embed within your company as well. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. And especially if you want to expand within Europe, it helps a lot because then you just have to realize that the Netherlands is just not the only place there is and just things work different in Spain or Portugal or Denmark and that you can adapt to that. Absolutely. Arthur, I think, you know, uh, you have a great name as well, Arthur Noble. And I was telling to Oscar that, you know, the Alfred Noble part would really play out when you launch your book. So tell us a little bit about your book as well. Yeah, definitely. Like, thanks a lot. So the interesting thing, eh, what we figured out, we did some view-room research and we figured out that from all companies that raise a seed funding, only 7% raises like a Series C funding. So that's a huge drop. And when we talk with founders, we've just figured out that on the one hand, there's lots of content on how to get to a product market fit. And there are, of course, lots of these success stories of companies raising hundreds of millions or like companies reaching unicorn status or having a big exit where founders share their story. And even though both aspects are great, we feel that for this in-between stage, that's a growing from one to 25 million annual revenue there's actually quite a big of a content gap. Like, hey, how do you get from that that's called free, the broadly defined series A to series C? So since this gap was there, we started interviewing 47 leaders on startup growth. Some really well-known people eh, like, for instance, Mark Roberts from HubSpot, Bill McIntyre from Slack, or Sean Ellis from Growpacking. But we've also interviewed lots of founders who are, for instance, in their series A, in their series B or C stage, which who are essentially 12 to 24 months ahead of you. And we discussed with them, like, hey, what are your most common challenges? How did you navigate those? What are your most common learnings? And from there, we bundled all their perspectives in this book, which we call Leaders of Growth, which we're about to launch soon. 
Congratulations for that. Apart from your book, are there any books or novels that have inspired you over the last few years that you would recommend to some of our listeners as well? In the past, I started my startup journey just with the Lean Startup and uh, Lean Analytics, which I think were just great books to start with. Just also going from good to great and those type of books. Nowadays, I don't read so many books anymore. Uh, I read lots of book summaries. I read lots of blogs and listen to lots of podcasts. I do think this book like Traction is, for instance, interesting. And some book I would always recommend, which is just like a classic, is Venture Deals. Venture Deals. Exactly. Brad Feld, is it? Yeah, it's Brad Feld. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So most probably we'll be getting Brad Feld in our second season. So uh, yeah, I was a venture fellow with the Kaufman Fellowship as well. Oh, that's amazing. I will, I will listen to that. <laughs> and of the podcast that you mentioned, you should definitely go for our podcast, Sassita Podcast. We'll be getting amazing guests and some great nuggets of valuable information in our coming seasons as well. It was lovely talking to you, Arthur. And thank you so much for being an amazing guest. And we close our season one with you. So we'll have a great time after our season one as well. And thank you so much for your time as well. Thanks for hosting me for all the wonderful questions. And uh, congrats on your great result with season one. And I'm looking forward to listening to season two.